0: Hey everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, back at his home, uh, finished with vacation, hanging out in um, some sort of an awesome uh, purple and gold, uh, like it looks to me like a sort of, it looks to me like what a Lakers sweatshirt from the 1980s that has cut off sleeves would look like but in fact it is uh, the a t-shirt from a local high school of the sort of sports team of a local high school anyway hanging out in that awesome purple and gold t-shirt today is uh, my podcasting partner and friend Ed Condon Ed how are you uh, I, I wish to I wish to take issue with something you just said I was not on vacation <laughs> back from back from inside, and everybody is my pal I, I'm just saying. I was there. I hope to go back. Uh but I was working. Yeah, back from your summer. I wasn't like a short when, changing anyone. I was put in full days. It's like when the queen goes to up to Balmoral or whatever to Balmerl. Um, Balmoral to uh to God's shoot sake. pigeons or what have you, but she also has to go through that big red box of important stuff. That's her main her main job is going through that big red box of important stuff, yes? Uh she does receive Big red boxes full of stuff that
1: assist her in her governance of the various countries of which she is sovereign, like the United Kingdom,
0: Canada, Australia, various Maybe other places. fact about that red box is that um, the queen has a trick. Her father taught it to her. She takes everything out of the red box and then she flips it all over on her desk because the feeling of her father, whose name was George something – Uh, was that the things which the members of parliament wouldn't want him to see would be placed at the bottom of the box. And so he would always look at the things at the bottom uh, first. I learned that, Ed, in a sort of documentary, I think sort of made from old home movies and things like that, about the queen and her dad uh, called The Crown. It's available on a streaming television service called Netflix, which you can also rent DVDs. (laughs) Do you have something like that in Inglaterra? Uh, (laughs) The point is, when the queen goes to Balmerle... Balmerle. And the queen goes to Palmer. She's got to work. It, and you two worked when you were. Do you have a name for the cottage? I mean, do you call it like, I don't know, rugby house or something?
1: Uh, no, it's referred to in my family variously as either the cottage or the lake house.
0: Mm, 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 mm. I, I don't. I, I, if you were to name it, what would you? Or your own home here. I, the thing is, Ed. The thing for you to know right now is that JD is having what might be referred to as a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And it has nothing to do with work or the podcast or you, but I'm feeling a little bit spicy, and so I'm giving you this interrogation, and I'm going to keep it up for a while. And if you don't like it, (laughs) dear listeners, you're welcome to fast forward until I don't know five, seven minutes from now, and we'll probably start talking about the church stuff that you're here for. But right now, I look. The podcast should not be um, my therapist, right? I mean, what I should not be doing is sort of like pouring out my feelings about the reason why I'm having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. um, You know, to all of you and seeking your. But what I can do with the show. Is just sort of take some jabs for a while at whatever it is I feel like taking jabs out until I sort of get tired of that and we start talking about church stuff. So Ed, if you were to name the cottage, what would you call it? Uh, I, I, uh, I, at home. That's what I would call it if I
1: could pick. <laughs> if I could pick any name for it, that's where I would prefer to be. I mean, I've been back in D.C. for exactly a week now and. Well, it's humid and fetid, and every cicada still alive in the area appears to be in the two trees in my back garden. Are the cicadas dying off? Other parts of the city I've been to, they don't seem... I mean, they're still around,
0: but they aren't, you know, thick as flies anymore. But, you know, again, except on my back porch where... So what happens that they mate and then they either... and then they die? So the ones on your... The ones on your back porch are more chaste than the others, is essentially what you're saying. They No, have not no, yet. it's an absolute Roman all
1: out there. Oh, they're really? all chasing each other around the yard and pinning each other to trees and going at it like bobs are dying. It's it's driving me absolutely nuts. You, mm. you know, you go in there and the air is
0: thick with them like choppers on, you know, the the evacuation of caisson. It's just... It, <laughs> I hate and then it. the mating, and you have to see the mating. Is that any sort of a New York occasion of sin for you, Ed? Uh, no. I mean, I know you've been bothered by this, and I'm starting to wonder if what's happening perhaps is that the whole thing is making you uncomfortable because, you know, you're watching this thing, and it's perhaps feeling more sort of uh, discomforting than you yourself would prefer, and you're starting to sort of think the sort of thoughts that one ought not think, and so you're just lashing out at these damn cicadas who are really just trying to keep their species going. No, I I really just want to be able to weed out my vegetable patch without hundreds of
1: insects trying to land on my back. That's, Have that's they eaten your vegetables? On. Uh, no, no, they like tree sap. Uh, they they've left the they left the tomato plants, the peppers. Uh, they've left my they've left my um, lemon tree, which is now uh, officially starting year two um, alone, which I'm deeply grateful for. I was afraid they were going to wreck that. Um, it's it's really just the two large, fully grown trees. But again, they're they're thick with them, and then the birds will dive in to have at the buffet, and then they'll all shake out and come tumbling to the ground and chase each other around the yard, and you know they, they'll land on anything. Um, so they can start making their god-awful
0: noise. So one of them landed on my glasses the other day. I mean, it's ruining. I saw you tweet that, and I realized, as soon as you tweeted that a cicada landed on your glasses, I realized that I had never, at that moment, I realized that I had never before noticed that you wear glasses. So really, the the cicada knows more about you than I do, I suppose. You've never noticed that I wear glasses? Not especially. I don't tend to...
1: Okay. Um, I guess that... Just goes to how much they've become part of my face, and or perhaps how ten years of I am to the faces of
0: others. I, I, <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> I told yeah. Dad. Terrible. This uh, this this episode is called "JD is Feeling Punchy." I love your glasses. And you uh, know what? I value your friendship.
1: There's the, the, the glasses do have a giant scratch down one lens now, from where I from um,
0: the cicada no not
1: from the cicada i mean obviously when the thing landed on the lens of my glasses i shrieked like a five-year-old girl and <laughs> swatted them off my face and onto the deck and it scratched them i mean you know uh, look i'm i'm made of stern stuff jd but these things are hideous they uh, you know what i did i i asked um when they were first starting to hatch a couple of weeks ago i said i basically wanted a flamethrower and somebody on the twitters sent me a link to basically a flamethrower um wow. basically a blowtorch with a six foot handle on it um which which i i think (laughs) you you use in in roofing uh is one of its many applications to heat up the tar maybe yeah um anyway i got one because it looked cool and i could uh so i got one i went down to tractor supply while i was up the lake and and got myself a giant propane blowtorch and and let me tell you this thing is fun. This is a toy oh, I can oh. hardly recommend. I mean, they say you can, you know, do the weeds in your driveway and um, porch with it and stuff. And I suppose I could do that, too. This thing lights a bonfire like a light switch. Wow. It is. It's And this is part of the reason why I'm so resentful against the cicadas is, you know, my back patio looks terrible because I haven't been able to clean it out in three weeks.
0: And I, I really want to just go outside and play with fire. It's, you know, that's. I'm, I'm enthusiastic about the notion of bruleing a creme from. Several feet away. Could you do such bruleeing if you were inclined? You absolutely could. Um, if you if you were if you made a creme brulee
1: in basically a child's paddling pool, this mm-hmm. would be the implement you'd want to finish it mm. off. Um, I, again, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, while I was at while I was up at the lake, the driveway uh, used to be when I was growing up a gravel driveway, but over the years. You know, dirt has accumulated and grass has started to grow and, you know, we lost about three quarters of it. And I just started basically burning it back to life. I burned all the grass, turned over all the stones and everything and got about 30% of the driveway back. It, I mean, this is, it's therapeutic, JD. You're having a bad, JD, you know what I'm going to do? When we're finished with this podcast, I'm going to send a I giant
0: blowtorch torch to your house. I could use one. I could use one. I'm having a terrible, no good, horrible, very bad day. I don't know if I've mentioned that or not, but, um, w- when you were doing the driveway thing, Ed, did is there any chance that you um, kicked off your shoes and ran in bare feet, or the grass and the dirt and the gravel all meet?
1: No, it, 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 it seemed so.
0: injudicious of me, to me, me, to
1: go barefoot while, you know, firing up a gigantic blowtorch as yes. I was then aiming Prudent. at the ground Prudent. in the proximal Venn feet. diagram
0: of prudence and giant blowtorch users is probably not one circle, but two nearly distinct circles. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I was drinking beer and smoking while I
1: was operating this thing, (laughs) which I suppose was probably not in the user manual, but it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. The neighbors, they all gave me very approving nods. Oh, good. I mean, I get a lot of, um, there is amongst the you know, handful of people who uh, listen to this podcast and pay attention to the Twitters and things, I've noticed there is a sort of um, a, a minority conception of me as someone who, who wears black tie every day
0: after six, which, again... I think is, you perpetuated that myth. It, it's Both an, of us create a sort of mythos of ourselves in social media. I mean, all of us. That's what social media really is, isn't it? It's a sort of creation of a sort of mythic version of yourself for others to... Yeah, yeah do, I mean, do, or, or, or. I, I do think you
1: should wear black tie to dinner in the city, and I do think you should wear a tie to work, and you know, I do think you should wear, if you are a man, trousers to church. Um, that, that's all true. But when I'm at the lake, I regress slightly. So there was a point where I was basically wearing um boots, work boots, uh distressed shorts, we could call it a a rather distressed t-shirt. I think it was an old AC/DC t-shirt and a camouflage baseball hat, smoking and drinking and operating a large blowtorch on the driveway and you know, I I felt pretty good. I felt back to my roots. That it was yeah. it
0: was pretty good. I, I I think I need to go back. I find myself wondering if that, in fact, was something of a near occasion of sin for the cicadas. But the other thing that I find myself wondering is what the historical critics say about the plague of locusts in the Old I don't know if locusts are the same as cicadas, and I don't even feel like looking it up. But I wonder what the historical critics say. I presume that they say that the locusts came because it was the 17th year or whatnot.
1: Uh, That that strikes me as possible. I've seen explanations of the parting of the Sea of Reeds as something to do with a a large... um... Seismic activity elsewhere, which created a sort of ripple effect, where the the water would have been taken out in a sort of mass rip tide. All of a sudden, I, to be honest with you, I I've always been open to the idea of some of the of the plagues of Egypt having um, sort of natural rationales, if you like. Um, I, I happen to believe that God is the author of all history, so I, I see no problem with Him working through sure. the world and creative mechanisms like that. I don't I don't require there to be sort of Charlton Heston esque, um, you know, walls of water on both sides to to believe that the, the miraculous, miraculous the crossing balcony. of the sea was well, was affected by the Lord. I, I'm, I'm perfectly open to that. I'm perfectly open to the fact that you know there were reasons why the the Nile went red and was a, as of blood and you know all the you know the point was it all happened in the space of a week and it really sucked for the
0: egyptians and they let the israelites go i think that indeed that seems to I'm me i'm of good. this mind i'm of this mind i think that historical criticism has something to offer biblical scholarship obviously um but i think it must be married to the oft mind-blowing deeply spiritual reflections of the church fathers on scripture which find in analogous meaning, a deeply spiritual meaning to even the most mundane of details. I think if we can marry those two things so that we have a sort of methodology for biblical interpretation that is willing to sort of take the tools of modern scholarship while at the same time actually sort of taking seriously what it is that people who like pray um, think about sacred scripture, uh, there's probably the best sort of approach to interpreting sacred scripture and understanding holy or as close to fully as we can its meaning.
1: Yeah, I mean scripture is not um it's not law it's not it's not a perfect and systematic you know I do, w- this is what one of our our mutual former professors once said is that you know this the this scripture is what god said the law is what he meant <laughs> You know, but there's there's, a, there's just an... to
0: clarify because before we hear from the scripture from budding young scripture scholars eager to make their bones by criticizing us on social media, we believe wholly and entirely that scripture is inerrant and is indeed the living word of God and a source of uh, uh, you know font of sacred revelation by which we can know the truth as interpreted and taught to us along with sacred tradition by the magisterium of the Church, a great gift of the Holy Spirit um, for all of us and for our salvation. I'm, I'm, sure I'm, disappar- I'm disappointed you chose to break kayfabe there. Um, <laughs> what we were doing, guys, is that last week I told a joke about canon law and some budding young theology student took to social media to uh, say that to, – to, 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 to take seriously our joke and then to critic- – as if I had meant it seriously and then to offer not only a criticism of the joke or a sort of murderous dissection of the joke, but then also kind of um, – a disparagement of canon a a straw man disparagement of canon lawyers and the canonical mentality and ordinarily I would sort of laugh those things off and indeed I did and indeed I do and usually I don't even notice them you know it's just that someone called my attention to this but today on my very bad terrible horrible no good day I have no problem calling attention to the fact that this budding young theologian wrote a tweet thread of near dissertation level um, essentially explaining to us why our joke was um, a joke Well, you know, that's what that's what grad students do. That's how they do it. Okay. It is time, Ed, for us to move forward from our (sighs) Thank uh, you from our rambling and ranting and otherwise waxing Melancholy. Um, in order to talk about uh, the things which are happening in the life of the church beyond J.D.'s terrible, rotten, no good, horrible day, which is indeed an aspect of the life of the church, but not the one that this podcast is about. Uh, what we do on this podcast is talk about the news of the life of the church. And there is a very big thing happening next week, the kind of thing that you and I cover assiduously and have long covered assiduously, the kind of thing um, that is uh, ordinarily kind of like Fashion Week and uh, the World Series <laughs> all rolled into one for us, This Spring Assembly of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, a public juridic person, an Episcopal conference here in the United States. Now, this Spring Assembly will not be all of the things that it ordinarily is to us because it, like so many things, remains a virtual event, which is to say it will be three, Zoom, four Zoom meetings. Uh, nevertheless... Let us begin by talking, Ed, as we ought. And I suspect this will end up taking most of the time of our podcast today. Um, let us begin, Ed, by talking as we ought about next week's meeting of the USCCB. What's on the agenda? What are they going to be talking about? What's going to happen?
1: Yeah. I mean, there are – obviously, there's the – there's the if you like, the the big main event. Um,
0: Let's get ready to
1: vote on the drafting of a document. In a serene and exhaustive <laughs> manner. Um, Yes, yeah, so, so there's the main event. That is the main event, which we can talk about later, and there's quite a lot to talk mm-hmm. about um, there. But I, I think it's worth noting that there are some other things on the schedule which, you know, merit attention and merit certainly the bishop's attention. And I'm sorry if all of those things end up being completely obscured by, uh, by the one topic because, you know. They, they merit their own, their own discussion of things. Um, some of them, I admit, I don't know everything
0: about. Well, then you have come to the right place, Ed, because while your expertise is Vatican finance, my expertise is the minutiae of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. I have been a conference nerd for a very long time. This is my wheelhouse. It is. So? Um, so, um, there is, for example, J.D., there are,
1: I'm told, uh two potential saints who are up for discussion at the USCCB. and now this i did not know i did not know this until we had an editorial meeting and discussed this and said well we should profile them i was unaware uh that, that there were two prospective american saints two servants of god up for discussion at the usccp this year and i'm i'm ashamed not to quite sure what that means well, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I'm also ashamed to admit that I didn't know that until we were discussing it. This seems like it should be a big freaking deal and, oh. you know, it's something to celebrate that, you know, everything, everything about the USCCB and everything about the US church doesn't have to be contentious and negative and argumentative. Some things can be wonderful and faith affirming. And so we have here, I, I presume, because again, I I know nothing about it other than the fact that it's happening and we now have a wonderful profile, which I'm looking forward to reading. Uh, about both of them that we have two potential saints so do do you have more information than i do about yes. this
0: Excellent. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, as an episcopal conference, duly and appropriately established in the in the, in the church, um, functions in many ways. It has a limited legislative capacity. Episcopal conferences are able to, for example, set the age of confirmation in a place, set certain financial thresholds for diocesan administration, establish the norms of clerical dress, and issue any number of sort of statements of uh, 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 various kinds of teaching weight on pastoral activity or doct- you know or matters of faith and morals. In addition to that, the conference is entrusted with a certain role during the course of the potential canonization or the cause of canonization for a person who is revered and venerated for a life of holiness and heroic virtue. An episcopal conference is required during the course of that cause for canonization to be consulted on the efficacy and value and uh, especially sort of the, um, the wisdom and prudence of the cause of canonization when it is at the level of servant of God. I believe it is, a, it is relatively early in the process and before the entirety of the act are transmitted from the diocese to the Congregation for the Causes of Saints in Rome, something which is done quite ceremoniously in which large boxes of files are tied up with velvet ribbons and flown to Rome and taken to an office of the Roman Curia at which point they're deposited on shelves next to similar-looking boxes from all around the world. Um, before, I believe, that it is before that can happen that the Episcopal Conference is consulted on the sort of wisdom and prudence of the cause of canonization. And so each person who is potentially going to be canonized from a country um, is presented before the Episcopal Conference at some stage in the process um, with a brief sort of biographical sketch and um, uh, an indication of whether there is, in their region, uh, their sort of local region, a cult of devotion to them, and whether there have been, in fact, already any sort of miracles attributed to them, and um, in a general sense from the diocesan bishop of the place where the cause is taking place, or from the postulator of the cause, uh, about the person's virtue and um, their witness to a heroic Christian life. This happens fairly regularly at the conference. You might remember, uh, I think it was two years ago or three years ago, the conference was consulted on the canonization cause of Sister Thea Bowman, who is a well-known black Catholic religious sister who advocated for, um, uh, a greater sort of a, a greater appreciation for the rights and dignity of black Catholics in the United States. And you probably remember that shortly before that, the conference was consulted on the cause of canonization of, uh, Julia Greeley, who was a, um, uh, a woman from here in Colorado, my, my home who was who buried at the cathedral, just a few miles from my entombed at the cathedral, just a few miles from my house, who was Julia Greeley was a, either a freed or a runaway slave. I wish that I could remember, um, who here in Denver during the sort of frontier days was a beggar of clothing and food and medicine for the poor. She herself was poor, but she would um, go around to the wealthy of the city and beg for all manner of things, which she would then take and distribute to the poor. She had um, some physical deformities and physical handicaps. Um, but she nevertheless walked miles and miles every day, collecting things, which then she would walk miles and miles to distribute. And she exhibited in all that a heroic faith in Christ and His Church. She was consulted; her cause was consulted about at the USCCB. The bishops voted uh, in, uh, in in approval of her cause proceeding, as they did for Sister Thea Bowman, and as I expect that they will do next week in the causes of Father Joseph Lafleur and Leonard Larue, who was later known as Brother Marinus. Brief sketches of them. Father Lafour was born in Louisiana in 1912. He was ordained a priest in 1938. He became a military chaplain shortly thereafter that. Uh, During an attack, he was stationed in the Philippines, and during um, the Pearl Harbor attack, he helped... uh, No, excuse me, on on Pearl Harbor Day, but not uh, at Pearl Harbor, but in the Philippines, he helped a number of... um, prisoners of war who had been wounded and on September seventh, 1944 while aboard a Japanese POW vessel, oh he himself was a prisoner of war while aboard a Japanese POW vessel um, he had been a POW at that point for three years uh, uh, his ship was torpedoed by a US submarine in fact it was not known to be a POW vessel and he uh, helped other prisoners to evacuate the ship uh, but lost his own opportunity to escape and went down with the ship there's been a cult of devotion for him Ever since, he was known uh, for his generosity and holiness, and his cause for canonization began in 2020. Now will be uh, consulted with the conference, and probably presented, I presume, by Bishop Destel of the Diocese of Lafayette in Louisiana. The other one, Brother Marinus Leonard LaRue, was born in 1914 in Philadelphia. He became a merchant marine captain uh, during the Korean War, and... uh, in 1950, he discovered tens of thousands of frightened Korean refugees packing the city's desks, seeking to flee the invading communist troops, and he welcomed 14,000 refugees into the cargo hold of his small ship, which was not designed to hold nearly anything like that. He transported them to safety to a South Korean island, where they arrived on Christmas Day of 1950. Uh, in 1954, he entered a Benedictine monastery in New Jersey and lived there until he died in 2001. The Bishop of Patterson, New Jersey, Bishop Arthur Seratelli, Will present his cause for canonization at the meeting next week. I suspect it'll be kind of a little video for both of them.
1: Okay, well, that's that's the deal. All right. So yeah. So the
0: conference has this cool role where they are consulted about people before the people's canonization cause goes very far. Okay, that's cool.
1: I'm yeah. I'm looking forward to that. More saints is good.
0: Yeah, more um, saints is good.
1: Something to be proud of. Uh, mm-hmm. There's there's apparently I think three translations from ISIL, which is the International Commission on the English. Um, liturgy, uh, which are up for approval by the USCCB. Should we talk about that? Uh, we we can. I mean, is this for the breviary? It's for the breviary, but it's for other things as well. So
0: I'm glad um, it's at- for the
1: breviary because the American translation of the breviary is absolutely awful and is slowly getting better. And I'm
0: well, here's really the deal. pleased to see this. Uh, after the Second Vatican Council, as you know, Uh, a new Roman missal was promulgated and that Roman missal was promulgated into the vernacular, um, into the languages commonly spoken by persons. You might know the term vernacular from... Uh, some line in Wizard of Oz where I think the cowardly lion says, something, something to speak in the vernacular of the peasantry, duh, 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 and then goes on with this thing. At any rate, um, after the Second Vatican Council, there was a new Roman Missal, and that Roman Missal was translated into various vernacular. And because this was a new thing, and there were not very many sort of um, consistent her- principles of translation, the translations initially were not very good. And uh, so there was time, there was call uh, at various times to sort of retranslate them. And if you remember, if you've been a Catholic for a little while, you remember that in 2011, we got a new Um, translation of the roman missal so i want to say that it was at advent that we started getting that we started having you know what you might say different mass we started saying and with your spirit and whatnot so you know if you go to mass with someone and they say like oh it's been a while and then they say and also with you you can tell that they haven't been to mass most likely since before 2011 Um, or else maybe they went a few times but they didn't hear it at any rate that's when we started saying and with your spirit and um enter lord i'm not worthy, that you should enter under my roof and other such things well, the Roman Missal wasn't the only thing to be translated, and so there's an organization called ISIL, the International Commission for English in the Liturgy, which is organized by um, the English, the bishops' conferences of various English speaking countries, which sends some of its best and brightest to work on translations of not only um, other liturgies, so rites, the rite of baptism, the rite of penance, the rite of, um, I don't know, the other things. Um, uh, various kinds of blessings, um, but also they have been working for a long time on a retranslation of the Liturgy of the Hours, the the breviary, the Divine Office, which is prayed um, daily, uh, at least twice a day, by clerics, and which many lay people have been encouraged uh, have been begun praying since the Second Vatican Council, when lay people were encouraged to pray the Liturgy of the Hours, which is um, an ancient prayer of the Church based upon the Psalms and other scriptural readings. Um, the project of the translation of the Liturgy of the Hours has been taking a very long time, because ISIL works on it in pieces, and when they have a piece, they then bring it to the bishops, and the bishops can have a period of time in which they can suggest amendments, and then the bishops all from all various places suggest amendments, and ISIL kind of takes a look at it and takes another crack at it, and then the bishops can vote upon whether or not to adopt that, or if they want to, the, the bishops' conferences of individual countries can vote to adopt um, you know, amended versions themselves. So even while ISIL provides kind of the template, uh, bishops' conferences can um, can sort of uh, customize it according to their good pleasure. But the U.S.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong. The U.S. has been using a different version of the breviary, a different translation of the breviary, I should say, um, from the rest of the English-speaking world. No. For
0: no, England, no. England no. has been using a different version. of England rejected the initial ISIL translation Hang on, of the bribery. no, I'm going to stop you here because it's not true. Because the breviary
1: that I pray with, which I bought in, as you correctly say, England, applies mm. not just to England and Wales, but also to Scotland. But if I'm not mistaken, and I can go and find the cover, I believe it was also adopted for basically the former British Commonwealth, which includes, you know, other large places like South Africa, um, India, the Australia. New Zealand,
0: other places. So no, I
1: think it is actually the US version, which is the, which is the apparent
0: minority. If the entire Commonwealth is using the English version, it is the entire Commonwealth which is using a different version, because the U.S. bishops are using the ISIL version. And the Commonwealth, um, the the English bishops came up with their own version and have been using that, and it's possible that some Commonwealth countries adopted it. Um, I would suspect that the Commonwealth countries that don't have English as an official ecclesiastical language, I I suspect English is not an official ecclesiastical language of, say, India, but I suspect English-speaking clerics, for example, in India probably are using the English version and other places which sort of are deferential England in a way that the United States is not, may well be using the English version. But the English version is the different version because it's not the ISIL version at any rate. It's much nicer. It may well be much nicer, (laughs) although there's an expectation that when ISIL finishes, so the International Commission on the Liturgy is doing this thing, and there's an expectation that when ISIL finishes the entire translation of the breviary, many people expect that the Bishops' Conferences of England and Wales will adopt it so that they can be kind of informed. But there's another thing, too, that kind of changes this, and it's this. While ISIL provides the framework, the psalm prayers, the antiphons, the hymnody, the scripture used in the breviary, which is a pretty good amount of the breviary, is used according to the scriptural translation used by uh, by the church in a particular country. Yeah, here in this the United is States, very we noticeable. We the New American Bible, and so while we use the New American Bible, I suspect that England at all, probably use like the RSV or something like that, and so your breviary would also be different because of the different scriptural translations. yeah,
1: the place where I find it most jarring, and I suspect this is down to that not um, not deviations from or in favor of ISIL uh, is in the Magnificat and the Benedictus
0: oh sure yeah, um, I could see the, that
1: there's there 's big differences there um, it's it, it isn 't even necessarily a question of better or worse, I suppose right. part of it a, a lot of it is you know the whole point of doing the liturgy of the hours of praying the bravery is that the psalms the prayers of it the psalter becomes um second nature to you that if you do it every day there's a four-week cycle of the daily reason so you know over the course of a couple of years or decades or whatever else you pattern them into you so yeah exactly that's the idea is that it becomes your subconscious prayer throughout the day so to hear um a prayer with which you are intimately familiar but translated in a way which is very near, but markedly different at the same time. It becomes very jarring, and it's almost impossible to unlearn. It's like learning to brush your teeth with your left hand. It's just very, very mm-hmm. awkward to try and learn a new translation of a of a prayer you know very, very well. So yeah, I've I found that on on occasions when, for example, we've had clergy over and it's turned you know dinner o'clock or whatever, and they say, oh, well, I just need to say vespers." You say, "Well, so do I." So we can just say them together, and then we whip out the braveries and then you discover, "Oh, this is." Mm-hmm. This is awkward. Who should we use? And at which point mm. I I offer, no, Father. Of course, we'll we'll use your translation. He says, no, we'll here's yours. It's your house. And I say, yes, but you're right. I feel right. like Mine the house better.
0: translation should be the should carry the day. Yeah, but I like to make the offer. Mm-hmm. That's very kind of you. One place where it becomes evident is that the breviary is designed to feed into the liturgy. So, for example, the colics of more uh, of Mass, um, you know, are often sort of antiphons in the breviary or something like that. And so. Um, if the translations are different, it becomes especially sort of jarring if you're praying in preceding Mass. So once the new things are done, there is some expectation. But the bishops are continuing to vote on that. And I think they're voting on some other rights, too, because there's a lot of like they, – they did the big translation thing, which is the the the, uh, the Mass, the Roman Missal. But now they're having to do the other things. The breviaries, the big project that's remaining, and then the other things. But one of the things that I learned today is that the um, – The uh, Office of Readings is not undergoing a new translation. So the Office of Readings, which is an office which includes long scriptural readings and also long readings from the fathers of the church and from other saints, which I think monks used to probably pray in the middle of the night, um, is not being retranslated in large part because that would be... A gigantic project, but I'm given to understand that ISIL the International Commission for English and liturgy is sort of reviewing their translation to make sure that they didn't like glaringly omit some sentences or something like that well that would be good although it's
1: my understanding that there isn't actually an English translation at all of or at least an official one of the of the second cycle of the office of readings that there's yeah. you know there's a at least in italian there's a there's a whole sort of year b if you like yeah. um for you know for the particularly for the second long reading in the office of readings which is usually from one of the fathers of the church or something like that and the the official English translation only has sort of the first year if you like which if like me it rolls around to sort of the end of summer beginning of autumn and you're stuck reading long readings from saint augustine's uh letter to the shepherds
0: mm-hmm.
1: week after week after week in which and i don't this is not a knock on saint augustine's theology or you know anything else he's you know fantastic um but boy can that guy overwork a metaphor
0: mm-hmm. and you know
1: by the end of like sort of the third week of just like oh just get on with it we get it there you know <laughs> the, the bishops are like shepherds the people are like you know we get you know but it's always what does it mean to take the fleece and what does it mean to take the milk and what is it it's like we, we get it the point of a metaphor is you know you don't have to explain it it's self-evident but anyway so i'm disappointed to hear similes? That word. um well, it would be if he introduced direct simile, but uh, I, I think the, the, at least my recollection of how it plays out in Augustine is he he uses a metaphor. Oh, I see. And You're then subsequently unpacks, unpacks it over it. three pages, oh. and it's just like, that's not the point of a metaphor. Indeed. Wunderbar.
0: Well, okay, so they'll have some votes on that. That will be a thing that they vote on. And, you know, take heart, those of you who are anticipating eagerly a, a new translation of the Missile. Why would people eagerly anticipate a new translation of the breviary? rather? This is why. Because the bindings fall off their books and um, the books get, you know, in addition to the translations not being especially poetic or beautiful, the bindings fall off their books. Those books have, you know, the problems that books have and uh, and um, some people would like to get new ones or things like that. But um, no one feels like they want to spend the money on a set of books right now when they're sort of waiting for new books to be translated. It would be like buying a code of canon law right now before a new code of canon law with the new book six had been printed. It's like maybe you would do it so you'd have it for reference, but you wouldn't be expecting to use it on a daily basis. Um, That's an interesting question. Do you think that all
1: of the the canon law faculties and societies that have got commentaries out are going to redo their sections of Book 6, get new commentaries?
0: I do think they're going to redo their sections of Book 6, and then they're going to sell entirely new commentaries. And they may take it as an opportunity to invite. So some of the people, for example, I mean... Some of the authors in the Canon Law Society of America's commentary on the Code of Canon Law are, to the best of my knowledge, no longer in priestly ministry or otherwise have faced serious legal and canonical challenges. And the canon Which law is Society why they
1: were, why you might ask, why you might ask were these people asked to offer commentaries on the penal mm-hmm. law
0: of the church? But, <laughs> indeed. But some, I mean, some had faced those issues already. Yeah. Some um, have faced those issues uh, since, since the time. Uh, of um uh, of their publication. And so the CLSA, the can Law Society of America, may well decide, I don't know, but may well decide to sort of have some things rewritten on as it, things have come to light since then about some of the authors. Now, I'm not the sort of person who thinks that a person's writing, and especially scholarly work, can't be of some value um, because of some significant issues in their moral life. But nevertheless, um, if... Though, if there are sections which are like particularly problematic in line of particular issues, I suspect the CLSA may decide in the aggregate to have them retransit. For or my, for my own,
1: I find it odd to have what are effectively convicted criminals writing the official commentary on penal law. But you know, you can't you can't dispute their personal investment in the subject. Vegas I suppose
0: can't be choosers. That's true. Nothing like a jailhouse lawyer, as they say. Indeed. Okay. So that will be the thing that is the ISIL vote. Now, the bishops subsequent to that, I'm not saying subsequent in terms of order because I don't know what the order is. But I, the next thing I think that the bishops will vote upon is something called a national, national pastoral framework for marriage and family life ministry in the United States.
1: Okay, this is this is the thing that I mean. This shows you the extent to which the discussion about so-called Eucharistic coherence has completely overshone everything else. Because this would be a huge deal. This
0: would be in a very any big any deal. Other
1: year. Can you a, imagine if you know? Assume for the sake of argument that there wasn't this sort of giant bun fight over um, the the necessity for a Eucharistic coherence document, which, you know, I would like to talk about a little bit yeah, uh, in a do. minute. But, you know, in, in a world where that wasn't happening, the idea that we were going to have a discussion, a national framework for marriage and family life at the USCCB and sort of, you know, I, I would imagine, discuss Amoris Letitia in some detail? Well, the,
0: the, the, the document is essentially intended for pastoral workers, priests, deacons, lady who work in pastoral life and ministry, religious, um, who work in pastoral life and ministry. It's essentially d- intended to, to offer um, guidelines for ministry with married people and families um, that are dr- extrapolated from the, the principles, exhortations, and encouragements of Amoris Letizia. Now, you know, there's always a question about, how frequently these kinds of things are y- actually used in pastoral ministry. But what happens with them is they form the sort of framework for formation. So dioceses, after this thing is published, dioceses will have sort of workshops on, you know, they need to have continuing ed for their sort of pastoral people anyway. So they'll have sort of workshops on continuing ed of various kinds of pastoral ministry. Universities will do the same thing, and they'll use this as kind of the framework for that. And so this will sort of form, the co. you know, this will be the sort of thing that forms kind of the – um the outlines and especially the lexicon of pastoral ministry with families for a little while. So what usually happens when these frameworks tend to come out is that they tend to sort of more broadly universalize a set of phrases that are either drawn from some magisterial document or, or introduced in the documents themselves. And when, so when suddenly, you suddenly
1: phrases do you mean like Dialogue or encounter. There was a switch. Here is what I
0: mean. Here is what I mean. One of the most sort of fascinating moments in in one of the sort of most fascinating switches under these things go unheralded, but that's why you listen to this show. One of the most fascinated unheralded sort of switches in the lexicon of the USCCB is the switch that came. I, I would say uh, it probably in early two thousand fourteen is when it came in, in sort of full force. And two phrases which had been abundantly in vogue, and by that I mean found in nearly every sort of U.S. ecclesiastical document that was available, um, were replaced. Those phrases were new evangelization and dictatorship of relativism. One introduced, well, one popularized by John Paul II, one introduced by Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, and both of them becoming sort of the um, lexiconic uh, icons of those papacies. Both of them were rather quickly um, replaced by the phrases missionary discipleship and accompaniment, two phrases used by Pope Francis in Evangelii Gaudium and otherwise used frequently in his um, pastoral ministry and exhortation. And um, those are fine phrases, and they have very—they mean very good things, and I particularly am fond of the phrase missionary discipleship. I use it all the time or talk about missionary disciples all the time because I genuinely like it and think it's a helpful kind of a phrase. But there was a switch that was like, bam, somebody flipped a switch, pulled a lever, And the words that had been sort of the buzzwords du jour prior to that were out, and the new buzzwords were in, and everybody knew it. Now, it's not that you won't find dictatorship of relativism or a new evangelization around anymore. But what's funny is after they go out of vogue as the predominant um, sort of lexicographic signals of, uh, in the conference, they begin to sort of take on the possibility of a political connotation. So if someone talks sort of too much about the new evangelization, um, you know, using the phrases too much of the new evangelization, you sort of wonder perhaps if they're sort of using them to signal... They're sort of uh the, the, that they haven't really taken up the language and um, and and approaches of Pope Francis right I mean these things can get very nuanced as all court politics can um, but indeed that um, does be it would like it would be like if you were um, a conservative and during the uh, the trump presidency you were still talking about compassionate conservatism, which was the sort of george w. Bush slogan and everybody would be like wait a minute we're not talking compassionate conservatism anymore we're talking I don't but think anyone during the Trump era was about. talking
1: about compassionate conservatism, but that, no, right? That just maybe my memory. The, I
0: don't know. I don't know what the other sort of party's buzzwords would be, but you, you, you catch my drift. At any rate, I'm not saying that the framework is merely a collection of those things. I'm saying instead that the framework will, no doubt, makes use of certain words that will become sort of the central pieces of various kinds of diocesan formation and university symposia and workshops and these kinds of things, and then you begin to sort of see them seep in so that in parish life and ministry, you'll hear people more frequently sort of talking about them with regularity or how are we doing on, you know, accompaniment or these kinds of things. And so, um, but the, the framework is very good and it offers, I think, really sort of um, helpful things for how it is that we can be in, in fruitful, that the church can be in fruitful pastoral ministry with uh, with um, uh, people in various kinds of situations, family situations. And it's especially important, I think, in the ever sort of fracturing family and domestic life uh, landscape of the United States to have new um, thought about these kinds of things. But what's interesting about the framework, sort of from the perspective that you're raising, is that the framework does not um, introduce any sort of commentary on um, the sort of controversial footnote of Amoris laetitia, the question that sort of created a quite a like long, long controversy about Amoris laetitia, namely um, the introduction of the possibility that some people who are Um, uh, divorced and in sexual relationships with people who are perhaps their civil spouses but not the person the church would presume to be their spouse people we commonly refer to as divorced and remarried might be permitted to receive communion which the church has traditionally said is not um, permissible unless those people are refraining from a sexual relationship. And Pope Francis said, no, it might indeed be possible under some circumstances. And and the footnote itself did not sort of elaborate on that for such persons to um, to receive um, the sacraments, which was taken to mean the Eucharist. And that created a lot of, has created a lot of controversy, which if you listen to this podcast, you already know. I don't know why I'm summarizing it for you guys. If you listen to this podcast, you're the kind of person who knows that. At any rate, the pastoral framework doesn't take it up at all, which I do think if it were not for the um, the big show, would become a major topic of discussion. I think there would be bishops who would ask why it didn't take it up. I suspect it didn't take it up because the conference didn't want to get into the controversy of it. But I think there would be bishops who would be pushing for to have taken it up and bishops who would be saying it would be better to leave it as is. And that would become sort of, I suspect, were it not for the Eucharistic coherence thing, that would be the focal point from the perspective of many in the media and many observers of the meeting. I, th- I think you're right. Should we talk about the elephant in the drawing room? We could. There are a couple of other things. The approval of the drafting of a national pastoral framework for youth and young adults. We don't have to go into it, but this is essentially the pastoral application of Christus vivut, vivit, which was the apostolic exhortation that Pope Francis issued after the uh, Synod on Youth, the so-called Youth Synod. And then um, the development of a new formal statement and comprehensive vision uh, related to evangelization and pastoral ministry to um, uh, Native American and Alaskan Natives. And this is something that's sort of going along in succession. The conference has been issuing a number of statements related to Various kinds of uh, pastoral ministry, catechesis, and evangelization of uh, of folks in various um, ethnic groups, and especially um, uh, various ethnic groups that have unique um, cultural identifiers. And so, um, cool. I think that'll be cool. Now, shall we do it? I don't know what it's going to say, so there's not that much I can say about it. They're only voting on whether or not they should make one, and they're definitely going to vote to make one. They're definitely going to vote to draft a National Pastoral Framework on Youth and Young Adults. They're definitely going to vote to approve the National Pastoral Framework for Marriage, Life, and Family Ministry. They're definitely going to vote to approve the causes for canonization of those servants of God. They're probably going to vote to approve all those ISIL things, although they may have a bunch of amendments. But the real thing, which I think they're also definitely going to vote to approve, the main sort of thing which has been getting the attention of most people who pay attention to the conference or people who only periodically pay attention to the conference is... Um, the approval of the drafting of a formal state on the meaning of the Eucharist in the life of the church, Ed, would you like to speak about this?
1: Um, sure I mean we we the idea is that the um, USCCB's committee on Doctrine has worked up a sort of thumbnail sketch of what such a document would look like that was sent around to the us bishops a couple of weeks ago. Um, we reported that. Uh, so it's it's there If anyone wants to read the whole thing We, we put it up so you can, you can read the whole thing for yourself That it would have sort of three parts um, Of course part of one of the parts Is the question of what some people are calling Eucharistic worthiness Or the reception of Holy Communion by people in What would otherwise appear to be um, Manifest in public states of uh, obstinate grave sin uh, And this has been particularly flagged With relation to politicians of course Um, And and there's been this big bun fight about it, and we reported on uh, the letter from some 68 bishops. uh, Reportedly from 68 bishops. Well, this is the thing. We reported that there was a letter sent to Archbishop Gomez, the president of the UCCB, from... With the names of 68 bishops. Yeah, with the name of 68 bishops calling for this entire thing to be shelved, to be dropped from the June agenda. Um, We reported that Gomez uh, at least, you know, didn't appear minded to... Accede to this letter's call because that's after that he circulated the draft of this doctrinal committee thumb sketch of um, of what the document would look like if it were so approved. So it's clearly staying on the agenda. But this week the story took an interesting turn, which is we we got a hold of the list of the sixty eight uh, supposed bishop signatories and we and we published that. And I thought it was um, good work to get that up because you know I think if uh, if you if you put your name on something. That's good. You deserve to be recognized for having so done, and uh, you know the, we we should we should have uh, we should have that to consider. But, but it took an interesting turn because we heard from a few um, bishops who who said that they had actually, subsequent to the letter being sent, asked for their names to be taken off. Um, we heard from one archbishop who said, uh, effectively, that the first he knew of his having signed it was when we published his name as right. one of the sixty-eight. He, said he was
0: open to signing it, but he wanted to see it first. Then he never heard about it again and then uh, we published the names and his was on it.
1: Now, this was Archbishop uh, Schnurr of Cincinnati. Now, I I I'm 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 open to all kinds of explanations for how uh someone who has not agreed to sign a letter sees his name appear on the letter.
0: Uh, the most charitable explanation is that those who organized the letter had uh forgotten the situation of Archbishop Schnurr wanting to see the letter before his name being put on it, and they there was some failure of organization, and therefore um, it was an oversight. That is indeed the most charitable explanation. Whether it's the most likely explanation, I do not know.
1: I don't know either. I I do think um, I I find the I find the matter curious, J.D. Uh, I have questions about it. I, I put some of those questions. We put some of those questions to the Archdiocese of Washington because, of course, the letter was sent on the the official letterhead of Cardinal Wilton gregory of washington uh he being at least by implication the letters principal author and organizer um we we've not received a response or an acknowledgement to those inquiries which is a shame um you know i i i think this is one of those things that you know asks for clarity but i mean more interestingly we've had we've heard from a couple of bishops sort of privately since then tell us that you know similar things to what we heard um from other bishops who asked for their names to be taken off, which is that the the letter, as it was, if you like, pitched to them, was they there was going to be this letter. It was going to go to Archbishop Gomez, and it was basically going to be um, praising and thankful for Cardinal Ladaria's letter to the U.S. bishops from a few weeks ago, calling for an ex- an exhaustive and serene debate. On the the subject of Eucharistic coherence and all this and sort of asking for maximum collegiality as the conference proceeds with this discussion and everything else, but that there had been no indication when they were sort of pitched the idea of signing on to this letter uh, that there was going to be this call for the the entire subject to be junked from the June agenda. And that they were somewhat surprised to see this, mm-hmm. uh, not just as the in, in the final text, but as the first uh, key and virtually sole point of the letter. Um, and, and I think that also raises some questions about how the letter was, uh, if you like, put around for consultation and signature amongst the bishops. I... Uh, I'm I'm not just confident. I'm absolutely certain that there's a vigorous conversation going on amongst the bishops right now about what exactly has gone on here and how it has mm-hmm. come to pass that names appeared on the letter that didn't agree to sign and other mm-hmm. names appeared on the letter that thought they were signing on to something completely different. Um, the whole matter is very curious, J.D., it is and deep. I suspect that we will not I suspect that we'll you know, we'll get the occasional allusion to this. During the the June meeting, I think there will probably be some veiled, possibly barbed references to this. I think there's definitely going to be some chit chat about this during the executive session when the well the cameras aren't going to be turned off because the whole thing's on zoom but um, when everyone else's cameras are going to be turned yeah. off and it's just the bishops talking to each other, I suspect there will probably be what I would call a free and frank exchange of opinion um, about the whole situation. And, you know, that's good. I think the bishops are entitled to have free and frank exchanges of opinion. I
0: I, suspect that, to be perfectly honest, there may be, and I'm trying not to make this all about us, um, it's not all about us or even a little bit about us, but I do suspect that, in fact, during the course of the executive session, there may also be a discussion among those bishops who are dissatisfied by Um, vigorous media reporting of this subject. I think vigorous media reporting of this subject is important because um, it's a subject which considerably impacts the life of the church and in which there is sort of half a narrative out in public and has been to bear all along without sort of a full and clear understanding of the way in which um, those entrusted to the pastoral leadership of the church have are exercising their offices. I think it's important to have clarity and understanding of that, especially in light of the church's promise of sort of procedural and uh, apostolic and zealous clarity and transparency. Nevertheless, I suspect that during executive session there may be those who ask what can be done about nosy, uh, pernicious journalists sticking their noses into such matters.
1: There, there may be some some discussion of that. I don't know. Um, but I, I tell you one thing. I, I was when we were when we got because of course we got a hold of the text of the letter first, and then it took us a while longer to get a hold of the list of the sixty eight quote unquote signatories, now 65 and falling, um, I, I was I was curious about why the letter was so insistent on being private,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which didn't make a lot of sense to me because, first of all, as a basic principle, I believe if you're willing to put your name on something, you should be willing to do so publicly because that's the whole point of putting your name on something is so people know that these are your feelings and thoughts and ideas and you stand behind them. Um, so I found that curious at the time, now that we know that at least one of the supposed signatories didn't actually agree for his name to be put on it, I mm-hmm. it raises a question of me if if this was one of the motivations for the letter to be so heavily marked, you know, not for wide distribution, please keep this private. Um I, I don't know. I all I know is if if I were Archbishop Schneer, I would be well, I'd be vexed by the situation, JD. I, I would not appreciate finding my name on a document that was contentious and putting across a, a particularly strong call for something that was at least you could you could say outside of the normal course of business for the USCCB. I, I would be annoyed to find my name on that if I hadn't signed it, and I would be even more annoyed to only have to only learn about it by reading it on um, you know, a news site.
0: That I would be too. I, I would be too, and I suspected that there are other bishops, and I have good reason to suspect. Although I, ha- if I had confirmation of this, I would print it. Um, but I have good reason to suspect that there are other bishops who also uh, have their names on the letter, who, um, who whose names were on the placed on the letter under dubious circumstances. So we reported about three bishops who either took their name off the letter subsequently or said they never agreed to put their name on the letter, and one of whom was sort of given an an inaccurate summary of what the letter was actually going to be. And I'm given to understand that there are other bishops who may be in that same situation, although I haven't yet confirmed that. I think there are some bishops who have now decided, sort of seeing something of a maelstrom around the whole thing, that they prefer not to... um, Fuel the fire. You know, stick their necks out on this, which, you know, fair enough, far far be it for me to... um,
1: yeah. I mean, this is an interesting thing. Is Part of the reason it took us so long to get a list of the signatories and get the get the text of the letter originally is because none of none of the signers, apart from a very few of them, actually had copies of the letter, it yeah. seems. And, you know, again, I'm not suggesting that they the supposed signatories of the letter were not given a copy of the letter to which their signatures were added because no one wanted them to see what they'd actually been signed on to. But again, if I were one of them, I would have questions about that. It seems unusual
0: to me. It seems awkward. I, It smells fishy, J.D. It does indeed. It does indeed. And uh, more to come. I don't think, you know, initially I thought more bishops might come forward and, and speak to their experience of putting their name on the letter or not putting their name on the letter. At this point, it's been a couple of days. I don't think that's going to happen. But I do think certainly kind of there is there are enough questions. Any one of those things can be explained, but there's a preponderance of those things. And usually when you have a preponderance of improbable circumstances, you begin to suspect that there may be a different explanation for them. And what we do know, of course, is that those who um, moved... So, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable, I think, for some people to say, yeah, we want to talk about the thing when we're all in person with each other. Um, You know, I think that's an understandable, sort of on its face, an understandable position. Um, But... What we do know uh, and what could give rise for some to suspect that there are ulterior motives, and I'm just sort of laying out the facts, what, could, what I think has given rise even for some bishops who have been very critical of this to to, suspect, to express that they think that there are ulterior motives is that the very bishops who uh, reportedly organized this uh, letter-writing campaign are the bishops who have been saying for quite some time that they do not think it is appropriate To um, for the conference to speak in any way about the question of whether or not a person, you know, in a particular political situation or professional situation ought to receive Holy Communion. So um, that those who are saying we should delay this until we're in person are the very persons who have also been saying, but the conference shouldn't say anything about it. And also among them is a person who said in January that the conference suffers from um, uh, serious and egregious internal institutional failures, which he himself felt responsible to clean up, suggests that there may be more to the story than simply thinking, oh, it would be better for us all to be together to be talking
1: well, about Well, you know what I really don't like about this? When I say I don't like, I just mean
0: it doesn't look good
1: to me. Right. Um, is that Cardinal supich for that is who was, who said, mm-hmm. institutional failure, failure to follow the due process of the mm-hmm. USCCB, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, blah, 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 blah. Um, the Cardinal Supich was, by all accounts that I'm hearing, one of, the, one of the organizers of this, one of the people engaged in calling bishops about the letter, soliciting support for it, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was also, and we've reported this, uh, you know, took the letter to Rome, um, shopped it around the Secretary of State, according to a few people I chatted to, uh, sort of invited Rome to weigh in on the subject, Mm -hmm. possibly, you know, say to Archbishop Gomez and the USCCB leadership, no, you shouldn't talk about this. And look, there's this letter from 68 concerned bishops. You should listen to them. Drop it off the schedule. Um, So, I I guess what I'm saying is I don't, I'm, not, I'm not accusing anyone of anything. I'm certainly not accusing anyone of willfully dishonest behavior. I'm just saying I'm a lawyer, and when I see means, motive, and opportunity, I, 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 it doesn't look great.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Well, there we have it. I think this will continue to be a thing. And, you know, the truth is, Ed, what I find most interesting about this is something that we just wrote about a little bit this morning, which is that as the bishops debate this uh, question of Eucharistic coherence, what are they really debating? And I said last week, and I mean it, that I think, you know, as much as the bishops, as there are some bishops who say, well, this is about catechizing, as much as that's true, the historicity of the thing is that it it was born out of um, the U.S. Bishops Committee on the Biden administration. And there are bishops who say, look, Biden's policies, which are unprecedentedly, Liberal about uh, legal protection for abortion and um, about federal funding for abortion are in Congress with the Catholic faith, and we need to address that. And we need to speak about it overtly. And one aspect of that is the scandal of such a a person who is advocating such policies in public prominence uh, receiving Holy Communion. Uh, That is indeed the the rub. I mean, you know, as much as that's where the thing was, you know, came from, and other things have been added to it, and it is a broad catechetical document. But look, at the end of the day. Um, it, it's not that the U.S. Bishops' Conference can or would promulgate a policy on pro-choice politicians receiving Holy Communion, but it is nonetheless true that this thing was born out of that question. What happens when a prominent Catholic is indeed, uh, um, a, you know, has has a, a very strong um, inclination to uh, work for the legal protection or federal funding of abortion and also receives the Eucharist? What should be done? This was how it started. And um, what I find interesting about this is that in 2006, Ed, the, sh- like shortly after the bishops kind of had a debate when John Kerry was running for president about the same sort of sets of questions, um, the uh, bishops promulgated a statement called happy are those who are called to his supper, which coming back to translations is the way that we used to say happy are those called to the, what we now say, happy are those called to the supper of the lamb. What did we used to say? Happy are those who are called to his supper? Yes, I think that's right. Behold the Lamb of God. Happier are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb is now said. What used to be said is happier are those who are called to His supper, which is the name of this document. And uh, and this document, happier are those who are called to His supper, is fundamentally a document on what is now called Eucharistic coherence. It's a catechetical document about what the Eucharist is, and then it talks about who may or may not receive Holy Communion. And it talks about that fact that people who are in mortal sin ought not receive Holy Communion, and the fact that. Uh, people who um, give public scandal in one way or another ought not receive Holy Communion. And then it talks about lack of adherence to Catholic teaching. And here I'm going to read a section of a document from the USCCB promulgated in 2006. Quote, if a Catholic in his or her personal or professional life were knowingly and obstinately to reject the the defined doctrines of the church or knowingly and obstinately to repudiate the definitive teaching, uh, her definitive teaching on moral issues, however referring to something else, he or she would seriously diminish his or her communion with the church. Reception of Holy Communion in such a situation would not accord with the nature of the Eucharistic celebration so that he or she should refrain. They said this, end quote, the bishop said this, end quote, um, th- they said this thing, which is the thing that they say that they want to say again in 2021, which I find interesting in two ways. One, this is indeed sort of the standing position of the USCCB. So if nothing happens, this will remain the standing position of the USCCB. I find it interesting that those who sort of oppose the vote on this have not kind of brought this up. Um, and I also find it interesting that those who support the vote on this uh, have – you know, the Doctrine Committee did, did cite this in their um, – in their sort of proposal on the draft statement, but this has not been a major talking point that this is the position of the conference. And I I find that interesting. And one of the things that I think can be concluded about that is that um, there really is a desire right now to sort of take what is fundamentally a straw poll on where the bishops stand with regard to various um, doctrinal issues connected to the Eucharist, including worthiness to receive Holy communion. And I think some bishops have been fairly transparent about that and said, you know, look, Brothers, um, you know, I'm thinking of sort of the Archbishop Quilla essay. Brothers, we have a pastoral responsibility to affirm these truths and to uphold them. And I think there's a desire to sort of see that expressed sort of, democratically or to see at least everyone sort of required to take a stand on the question of what's now called Eucharistic coherence. Um, I think that's part of it, the, and I think it's good to say that and to be clear about that. Um, the other part of it that I think is interesting is I think a lot of people forgot about this 2006 document. I think it's just a sort of fascinating sort of study on the life cycle of USCCB documents that I bet, um, just based on the fact that this has been a talking point in practically nothing, that a lot of bishops just forgot, um, and a lot of, I mean, I didn't I didn't know about it, I'll be honest, I didn't know about it, that a lot of people who work and watch the church professionally are unaware of a USCCB document that's, directly connected to a major issue happening right now that was promulgated 15 years ago or approved 15 years ago. What percentage of, of
1: the U.S. Episcopacy do you think has turned over in the last 15 oh, years? Oh, that's a great question. I don't no, I'm, know. No, I, I know you I, don't, I don't know what i What's your I, mean, I don't even want to say football. I don't,
0: I don't know. I think probably half. Mm-hmm. Half? A lot. Yeah. A lot,
1: I think. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think this raises... Um, Obvious and well-trodden questions about the, the the longevity and wider utility of conference statements, qua conference statements, um, and I think you're right. And we talked a little bit about this last week on the podcast. That you know, um, I'm of the settled opinion that the uh, that this entire thing about you know Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. and um, you know, this is politicizing and weaponizing the Eucharist versus, you know, we have to take a, you know, we have to take a strong moral stand against, you know, the political leadership abusing the imagery of the church by turning up to mass every week. I think all of this is a proxy fight, that this is about genuine theological dissension mm-hmm in the conference that there are things the church teaches about the eucharist the things Mm -hmm. that the church has always taught about the eucharist things that are in the catechism things that are Mm -hmm. in the code of canon law things that are in the didache you know from the (laughs) first document of the church right through to the most recent document of the church have always been there and i think there is a a minority but a vocal minority of the conference that simply don't believe it they don't Mm -hmm. believe it and they don't want to teach it and they want Mm -hmm. to vote where they can say, we're going to take this off the table, because it's awkward to say, we don't believe it. So we're just going to say, we'd rather not talk about it. And, you know, I'd, I I think it would be refreshing to see the matter framed in those terms, because I think those are the actual terms of this discussion. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. But, you That's know, right.
1: one thing is interesting, uh, you know, the, the universal lesson of, of sort of survey taking and polling is that how you frame the question skews the outcome. And I think it would be a lot easier to get some votes uh, from the floor of the USCCB to say, hey, why don't we hit pause on a a potentially controversial document and discussion that will probably be unfavorably and unfairly received in the secular media? Um, Why don't we press pause on that? That's probably a lot easier to get votes for than a vote to Mm -hmm. say, we'd like to not affirm what the conference said in 2006.
0: Yeah, what's interesting is, you know, Cardinal Adaria, the prefect of the CDF, when he wrote to Archbishop Gomez last month to sort of give guidance on this whole discussion, he urged the bishops to look to other conferences. And the um, CELAM, the Confederation of Latin American Bishops' Conferences, indeed has a sort of statement on Eucharistic coherence. In fact, that may be where the term comes from, that was probably authored, I mean, it's part of a document that was principally authored, authored by Pope Francis before he was elected, which says rather deliberately that... Um, politicians and others who um, promote uh, legal protection for abortion, uh, or politicians who promote legal protection for abortion, and then others who sort of work uh, uh, connected to abortion should not be uh, should not receive Holy Communion. And then there's this 2006 document from the USCCB which says something similar. After Ladaria sort of said like, take a look back at what uh, what else has been done. So, I mean, it's sort of interesting because as much as this is framed as what should the church, you know, the bishops say, I find fascinating the sort of like that it's that there's a preponderance of history of the church in various places saying all the same kind of thing, you know, it's almost like the church has a common and constant universal and changing teaching JD. Mm-hmm.
1: Funny indeed. that indeed. Um, okay. I, there is one more
0: thing cause we are, we are coming close we're to coming time. close, mm-hmm. but we're going to talk about one more thing. Okay. I have a, I have a, I'm interviewing someone in a little bit, so I've got five to seven minutes. Oh, I, I thought you had half an hour. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I I thought I thought it was it. I mean, we've been recording now for an hour. I know, but I, I I'm sorry. I thought your thing was at four your time. It is at four my time, but as you can see, Ed behind me, Ed is a mattress. And the reason there's a mattress behind me is because we had a house guest recently, and that house a family of house guests. In fact, I think I mentioned them on the show last week. And those house guests, some of them slept in my office on this. Uh, lovely uh, mattress behind me, this queen mattress. And next week we're having more house guests. And uh, again, they shall sleep on the mattress and presumably in my office. And rather than take the mattress back down to the basement and take it back up again, I've just sort of had the mattress leaning against the wall. But I have a priest coming over in a little while who I'm going to interview for a story that I'll publish in a couple of weeks from now. Um, And uh, I feel like I should move the mattress because it feels a little bit weird to have a guy come over to spill the beans you know, and it's got about various things, and there's just a gigantic queen mattress looming over the whole room. So, you need to take a little bit of time to move the mattress and then probably straighten up a little bit.
1: Okay, but I'm I'm deducting your explanation from my time yeah, 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 sure, sure. Um No, I want to talk about one thing that happened this week, which you don't have to say anything if you don't want to. If you're bored by it, if our listeners are bored by it, you can fast forward. But we're going to talk at least for five minutes about the Money Vol report on the whole sea. Because this it. is
0: a big, freaking very, deal. Very, very big deal. What did you just say? It's a big, freaking deal. It is a big, freaking deal. I th- thought you said something different. No, I, I wouldn't say that on the podcast. Yeah.
1: Um, anyway, no, because there was this on-site inspection in September and October last year of the of the relevant financial institutions of the Holy See, not all of the financial institutions of the Holy See, arguably not the financial institutions of the Holy See most in need of inspection, but some of the, fi- of the financial institutions of the Holy See by Moneyball, which is the Council of Europe's anti-money laundering and terrorist financing watchdog. Um, and it was the first such on-site inspection since uh, 2012, I believe. So it had been a while, and uh, we were all waiting with bated breath to, to see what this report would say. And the report came out. It's 275 pages long. Most people read the executive summary, if they read any of it at all. Um, and it had some positive things to say. It was, generally speaking, praiseworthy about efforts taken to reform the IOR, which is A, not the Vatican Bank, um, which I think is praise well due. Uh, the president of the IOR is a, is a man named Jean-Baptiste de Franzu, who has by all accounts done sterling work and is incredibly um, credible in his role and and so that's great I'm glad to see that those efforts are being rewarded um, there was some praise for how sort of internal reporting or flagging or whistleblowing mechanisms are working in terms of financial stuff which is visible because for example the IOR is the organization is the institution that blew the whistle on the Secretary of State about the London property deal um, when when you know, Cardinal Paralene tried to strong arm the bank into giving him 150 million euros to refinance the mortgage on the London building. So, I mean, that is, that is working well, the sort of internal whistleblowing thing is working well. That's good. And again, praise well due. Um, and, and this was, uh, you know, it was also recognized that a lot of accounts have been closed at the IOR over the last nine years, you know, the period leading up to, you know, the, the report, the relevant reporting period since the last inspection in 2012. And it's true. Lots of accounts have been closed because if you bank, with, in a, at a bank in Vatican City, um, you're obviously that's a sovereign jurisdiction, so your accounts are not visible to necessarily, and certainly not taxable by other nations. So it has been traditionally a target for people looking to do a bit of money laundering and tax evasion because it's sort of the ultimate offshore banking destination, and and that has been severely. Uh, Combated and minimized, and the risk of that is now rightly seen as being, uh, I think, medium low. Is in the wording of the report, and 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 rightly so. I think it's great. It's a much less attractive target for this sort of thing now because they've made it much harder to to open or maintain an account um, if you don't have you know sort of either Vatican City residency or employment or you know a legitimate and obvious connection to the Holy See. And that's all great. And most of the media coverage uh, around this report noted that. uh, Also, it had some you know some some important. Recommendations uh, and uh, around things still to be done. The inspectors noted a lack of expertise, resources, and manpower for the prosecution and investigation of financial crimes in the Holy See, which I think is, we could say, fairly apparent um, in that the single investigation, uh, which is very sprawling, has been going on now since 2019 into one complaint. Um, and they have at times appeared rather out of their depth or overmatched as they have tried to follow all the threads of this, which extend, and these are just the ones that I know of, to Malta, Switzerland, London, Luxembourg, uh, Italy and several other countries in between. So, I mean, they're, you know, there's a big job, and they are definitely under-resourced and under-manned and lacking in a sort of full-time dedicated expertise, and so the report called for, for a beefing up of that. Pope Francis has made, it should be noted, a number of pointed financial reforms in the last few months. Um, I, interestingly, so the report was supposed to come out at the end of April. It didn't. Um, it's dated April, so it was ready to come out at the end of April, but it was delayed. And I remember speculating at the time that one of the reasons why it might have been delayed is the Vatican was given its copy of it and said, Hey, before you put this out there, let us make some of the changes you're recommending. And some of the changes that the report recommends were sort of verbatim reproduced in this Vatican legislation that all came out at the end of April. Most notably, um, the ability to try bishops and cardinals at the ordinary court of the Vatican City for financial crimes, which was specifically called for in the report and is now. In Vatican law, so there there does appear to be that sort of willingness, uh, at least at some level, in the Holy See to respond to this report in a favorable way. But what a lot of people missed in the report, which is easy to do if you don't read past the executive summary, um, is it wasn't all good news. In fact, it said basically that yes, you've done a fabulous job in minimizing the risk of uh, the IOR and similar banks being sort of a target for international money laundering and uh, tax evasion. But your biggest risk now is internal corruption, is abuse of office, is misappropriation, is fraud by Vatican officials, and um, so here's the funny thing: um, the uh, the Vatican officials said that they they told them. I'm just going to quote from the report because I find this um, entertaining. Vatican authorities have av- have advised the inspection team that they consider the risk of abusive office for personal or other benefits presented by insiders and related to money laundering mm. to be low mm-hmm. however the assessment team disagrees with this conclusion mm-hmm. and is of the view that the risk presented by insiders are important um, it mentions the report mentions uh, <laughs> media coverage, which has raised red flags of potential issues of abuse in the Holy See and Vatican City State by mid-level and senior figures. Um, I wonder what that's in reference to, but what it actually, I mean, this, and I'm going to quote from the port, um, cause I think this is, this is important. And, you know, it gives you an idea of the, of the kind of crimes that they think are are now the highest priority for the vaticans The dominant typologies suggested by cases and suspicious activity reports include predicate offenses of fraud, misappropriation, giving and receiving bribes, and abuse of office within the Vatican. This is moneyball. <laughs> this doesn't sound like good news to me. No, but no, the, no. if you read around, everyone's like, money moneyball said the Vatican's doing a great job, a lot of progress, mm-hmm. and you know they need yeah. to hire some more people, and that's about it." And it's like. I, can you imagine any other sovereign jurisdiction having an independent assessment of its, you know, of it of its soundness, and them coming away with saying, "Well, we found a lot of offenses of fraud, misappropriation, giving, receiving of bribes, and abuse of office," and going, "Well, this is good news."
0: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is not good. It's not good, Bob. This is right. not good. Not at all. Not at all. <sighs> but you know, I'm just one man screaming into the into the abyss here. Um But I'm glad that the report came out. It's 275 pages. If you've got the time and the interest, I recommend you read it. We, we've we linked to it uh, in our own coverage of it on the pillar. And this is not going away. No. Uh, it is not. We are no. going to see people go on trial. And, and by the way, when we do eventually get to trials, and I hope we will soon, um, this is what they, the Moneyball called um, the Vatican prosecutions, of which there have been a few um, recently. Of, of money laundering crimes. The former president of the IOR, for example, was convicted earlier this year. Um, they, they called the Vatican's uh, progress on prosecuting and convicting um, offenses of money laundering once it was detected modest. They called it yes. modest. Mm-hmm. Um, actual sanctions imposed in money laundering cases where there have been convictions are below the statutory thresholds for the money laundering offense and appear rather minimal. Arguably, and this is what the report says, arguably, they are not proportionate or dissuasive.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, you know, I I I was asked, um, you know, what kind of score, what kind of letter grade I thought Moneyball were going to give the Vatican, and I said it was probably going to average out to, you know, C plus B minus because you know the IOR is doing well and that's fair enough. Um, But there's many you know, other I would call this C minus D plus.
0: Yeah, you know, they yeah. ain't failing, but if but if, they got a lot to work on, and the and Moneyball's not convinced by their claim by the claims of. Uh, of resolution of the concern of of uh of, well
1: i i don't want to yeah. be a jerk about this but if you get if you get an audit in 2012 and they say we're convinced and it seems pretty clear that you're a target for international criminal activity and right. money laundering from outside actors and we think that's bad right. and the right. next inspection comes is well, we're no longer worried about that we're worried that it's people within your yes. sovereign jurisdiction that are in fact committing the crimes that's not
0: progress you've internalized right. the problem right precisely yeah <laughs> Precisely, that's right. Again, yeah. All right. End of rant. But I just well, no, it's fine because we we have been spending long attention on precisely that stuff and uh, on precisely those internal questions, and we will continue to be able to do so. And I do think we will see trials. And I think the Moneyvol report is um, an affirmation of the fact that there needs to be first a recognition of the problem. I mean, you know, it's it's amazing. Um, what what is amazing um, is that. Uh, the will to resolve a problem like this is really the, the most difficult thing to achieve. When you get uh, a group of people who say, yeah, this is a serious problem and we're going, to, uh, we're going to resolve it, you know, everything else is is resolution. But the failure to accept that the problem exists is, um, you know, is indeed the greatest sort of share of the problem, isn't it? It is. It mm-hmm. is.
1: Um, yes. As, as Pope Francis wrote to a certain
0: German cardinal this week, burying your head in the sand gets you nowhere.
1: You have indeed. to confront the
0: problems head on. We shall talk about German Cardinal and many other things next week. Um, and b- before we conclude, a note, if I may, um, and I, I may. Um, so before we conclude, <laughs> a note. Uh, I began this podcast, listeners, by saying uh, what what is true, that I've been having a no good, terrible day for reasons that have nothing to do with this podcast. And that is indeed true. And... Um, uh, um, you know, there's nothing that can be done about that. Everyone has those kinds of things. Everyone has their own, uh, crosses and challenges in this life. And one of the things that I was thinking about as we were doing the show, though, as we were talking about this, is just how grateful I am for, um, the community that has, uh, sort of built up around this show, around the Pillar podcast, um, around the Pillar publication, various people who we have engaged with on social media, who reach out to us by email, one person who got my number and texts me sometimes, um, just just how grateful i am for the way in which uh, you know um uh st paul talks about in thessalonians and probably other places the importance of building one another up in hope in in hope of the resurrection and um and that is important it's 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 immensely important to continue to be encouraging one another in the christian life and um and and perhaps we don't you know, many of us don't have the sort of organic experience of the Christian life that um, that sort of the early Christian communities had or even the organic experience of the Christian life that we had 18 months ago because our parish life and our social lives have um, not wholly sort of rebooted in, in entirety. And therefore, the sort of ongoing cr- encouragement to perdure in the Christian life, despite the challenges and crosses that are concomitant with that, um, uh, that are sort of an ordinary part of any life, let alone the Christian life, um, uh, the, the, the virtue of encouraging one another up, uh, uh about those things is, is, uh, should go without saying. And, uh, but I don't want it to go without saying, because I am in, indeed deeply grateful for, um, the community that we have been able to experience here. And even I, dare I say the friendships that we have been able to experience through this podcast. So a podcast, you know, seems in a certain way to be a mere static medium, that is to say, Ed and I talk and you listen, but it hasn't proven to be that at all. It has proven to be far more dynamic than that because you guys give us, a crap ton of guff and um send us notes when things are helpful to you and send us notes when you don't think that we've been helpful enough and uh, and all of that i think is a way of building one another up so let's keep at it and more to the point thank you all for continuing to listen for continuing to read our work and most especially thank you all for uh, continuing to subscribe to our work yes thank you yes all right uh well everybody the pillar podcast is a production of pillar media and ed and jd production i'm your host jd feeling like a sad sack flynn and i'm joined by my podcasting partner ed vindicated by the money vol report content we'll be back next week with a somewhat special edition of the of the pillar podcast which we will record midway through the usccb's uh you know to do adios